week of this four-part um, series that we have, where in which we have been looking at and exploring this idea of biblical freedom. The, the previous three weeks we have been in Paul's letters. The first two weeks we were in Paul's letter to the Romans, first in chapter 6 and then in chapter 5, and then last week we were in Paul's letters to the church of Galatia, again in chapter 5 there. We've We've seen over the last couple of weeks what freedom is and isn't. We've seen that it is not the ability to do whatever we want. It is not the ability to live in moral and religious anarchy. But that the freedom that we can experience, what true freedom is, is found only in Christ and in our submission to God through Christ. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be turning actually for this last, um, this last week together on this topic, we're going to be turning to the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. We're turning to Matthew chapter 11 and, and we're going to, to listen in on what Jesus had to say about freedom and about what it is that we get to experience when we turn to Him for our freedom. If you have a copy of Scripture with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew 11. If you don't, um, please feel free to grab one of those black pew Bibles, black hardback Bibles in the pew front in front of you. And as always, if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your very own, I'd encourage you to take one with you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 25. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart because you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we seek to know what it is to be yoked to You, to share our burden with You, to, to find rest and refreshment in You. As we seek to learn those things this morning, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to You, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So for a while now, we started about a year and a half ago, um, we've, we've been talking about, and I've used it various times, we, we actually learned some about it on, on Sunday night and Wednesday night, um, this, this method of talking about and sharing the gospel called the three circles. Now this is one of those points where if our monitors were working here in the sanctuary, I would be able to show you and remind you visually what the three circles are, because it is a wonderful, good, simple, and visual representation of what the gospel is about. 
But, but in that, if you, if you can remember it in your, in your mind, if you can remember it in your mind, we start with, with the first circle, and that's God's design. And then the second circle is brokenness. And we talk, when you talk about the three circles, we talk about how all of us experience brokenness in some way. We experience brokenness in the world, and we experience brokenness in our own lives. Now, the line that connects God's design to brokenness, how we get to brokenness from God's perfect design, is the line of sin. But brokenness is something that we all experience. And if you remember in your head, off of that second circle, there are all of these little squiggly lines that come off of it. And when we talk about three circles, when we use three circles as a tool to tell people about the gospel, we talk about these squiggly lines are all of the ways in which we can try under our own power to deal with that brokenness that we all experience and feel. There are ways that we use to try and heal the pain and fill the void that the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our own lives can, can create in us. Now, I don't think we should have a problem agreeing that we all experience brokenness, correct? Can we, we, we've, we all had our own various personal experiences of that, haven't we? We've experienced some of the brokenness of the world in just the last couple of weeks. With some of the, the deaths that we have experienced. There were five different condolence notices that were published in the newsletter this week. Five. In a two-week period. That, that is an experience with the brokenness of the world. Some of you, I'm looking out here and I know a lot of your stories. In fact, I know most of your stories. And some of you are dealing with, with illness, chronic illness, or, or, or sometimes in some cases acute illness. That's a, a form of brokenness. Illness was not part of God's design. There was no illness in the garden. There were also for the record, not crying babies in the garden. This is one of those things that a lot of people take issue with. St. Augustine of Hippo, when he talks about um, original sin, and he's talking about the brokenness of the world, he points to crying babies as an example. And people get very upset because we think of sin as this naughty thing that we have done. And so when we say, when Augustine says that a crying baby is evidence of sin in the world, that can make us feel icky. Because he's not doing anything wrong. He's doing what babies do. He wants to be held. Knowing that cry, it may be a diaper change. That's the only way he has to communicate. And he's been very communicative the last couple of days. But, while well, his crying is not a sin, it is evidence of the sin that's in the world because in God's perfect design, babies don't need to cry to be understood. There is brokenness in 
the world. And we all experience it in various ways. And, and when, when life is hard, it's easy to turn to other things to distract and to numb us. Sometimes uh, in therapeutic language, we talk about this as self-medication. And there are various ways that we can self-medicate. And those forms of self-medication, that's what, in the three circles, that's what those squiggly lines are, the ways we try to self-medicate ourselves out of brokenness. And there's some ones that we all know and that we all point to because oftentimes it's something that somebody else has to deal with and not us. And so we can get very judgmental when we point out the ways that people can deal with that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's alcohol. Alcohol is a very common method of self-medication. Increasingly, it's drugs of various kinds, other than alcohol. Alcohol, of course, is a drug in its own right. Narcotics. If you don't want to feel, opioids are a great way to not feel. That's their whole purpose, right? That's how they're used in in medicine. And so you cannot feel. Sometimes, sometimes the way that we can try and seek to numb that pain is through the use of pornography. I, I hate to say this, but statistics would tell us that more than one man and probably more one or more women in this room just statistically have or have had an issue with pornography. And that is becoming so ubiquitous, it's showing up on our school buses and in our classrooms and on the playground. Everybody's got one of these in their pocket. But let's talk about some other things that we might use. What about online shopping or shopping in general? Man, I've had a hard day, so I'm going to get online and I'm going to buy a new book off of Amazon because Lord knows I don't have 800 books I haven't read yet. What about food? How many of you can joke about being a stress eater? Or, 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 or what about the overpowering need you have to get out of the house and disappear and fish? Now, see, there's, there's nothing wrong with fishing, just as there's nothing wrong with buying books and there's nothing wrong with eating. But if we are using it as a way to deaden the pain, it becomes a problem. There was a book several years ago written by a guy named Seth Haynes. Seth tells his story in this book of how he ended up very intentionally and consciously becoming an alcoholic. They were sitting in a hospital room planning the funeral of their dying two-year-old and he made a decision that he never wanted to feel again. And so he had his sister-in-law smuggle a bottle of gin 
into the hospital, and for the next several years, he felt nothing. He tells the story in this book, uh, Coming Clean, uh, in which he documents his struggle back into faith and, and into sobriety. It won actually several awards and was nominated for several awards a number of years ago when it came out. One of the, one of the Christianity Today Book of the Year awards. But in it, in it he, he writes this. He says, he says, the bottle is not the thing. The addiction is not the thing. The pain is the thing. He didn't pick up that first gin bottle because he really liked gin. He picked up that first gin bottle because he wanted to numb the pain. In the movie The Princess Bride, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who those of us who are the viewers will know is actually the missing farm boy Wesley, <clears throat> he seeks to capture Princess Buttercup. And, and as, as he's talking to her, you know, she says, you mock my pain. And his response is, life is pain. Highness, and anyone who says different is selling you something. Okay, so maybe that's not totally true, and even Wesley doesn't think that it's totally true, but the truth is, is that, that life can give us a lot of pain, that life can, can feel tempest-tossed, to borrow a line from a hymn, tempest-tossed on occasion, can it? We can feel buffeted and, and like we're riding this storm in life. Now, when a ship, when a boat is out and the boat is out and it's being tempest-tossed, what keeps the boat steady? What keeps the boat from rolling over? It's, it's ballast. Ballast is what keeps a boat from capsizing, even in the, the harshest of waves. Ballast is, is this heavy stuff that gets put down in the very bottom of the boat to keep the boat steady. If you ever go to Savannah, you will see um, down by the, the waterfront, you'll see all of the, the cobblestone streets with those round rocks. Well, those rocks were at one point all ballast that were brought in on ships because, because when the ships left, their ballast was the, the produce and the goods and the commodities that had been produced on this continent to go back to Europe. But, but they exchanged ballast, but they still needed ballast to keep the ships steady as they crossed the Atlantic. We can easily be tossed to and fro by our circumstances, but, but, but we need something weighty to secure us. Hebrews 6 says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We need something to anchor us, to steady us, to give us weight. We need weight in our life's boat to keep us steady. And this is the, the power of the gospel at work in our lives. Sometimes it can feel heavy, but it keeps us steady and can keep us afloat. As we turn to our Scripture this morning, we find ourselves in, uh, in verses 25, 26, and 27. We, we find us overhearing a prayer of Jesus. You know, he's he's going to tell the disciples how to release their burden, but, but first He lets them, He lets us overhear this prayer that sets the stage. 
Even in his public prayers, Jesus is discipling the disciples. Even in his public prayers, he's teaching them something that he knows they need to hear and understand. And that's what we get here. And so he says, I I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Now, I want to be very clear here. This is not Jesus talking about the dangers of higher education. Or this is not Jesus asking you to to check your brain at the door. After all, our intellect is a gift from God. God gave us our brains. He wants us to use them. In fact, we're told what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The life of the mind, our intellect, is an important part of how we follow Jesus. So Jesus isn't saying, check your brain at the door. Rather, what Jesus is referring to here is those who who think that they can live life without God. That they can, by their own wisdom, figure out how to make it through this life. There are several times in Scripture where Jesus talks about the wisdom of the world. Over, over, actually, over in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. The, the, the Greeks, the wonderful, philosophical, intelligent Greeks can't get it. Because sometimes we think that, that we can think our ways through it, we can, we can white-knuckle it, we can, we can figure out on our own how to get through and how to deal with the brokenness of the world. One of the fastest rising religions in the United States is a religion that you may never have heard of. It's called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism is is actually a term that's been applied to a set of beliefs that we see over and over and over again in our culture, and in fact we see over and over again in our churches. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this idea of we're going to teach you how to be moral, we're going to teach you how to, through your own power, deal with the ways of the world, and when it is convenient, we're going to acknowledge that there is a God out there. Moral, therapeutic, deism. It's an, it's an anti-gospel. Because what it tells us is it tells us that we can teach you how to be moral, and in teaching you how to be moral, we can teach you how to, how to make it through. And in those rare occasions when you can't get there on your own, sure, yes, turn to God. It doesn't doesn't teach us, it doesn't teach our kids to to throw ourselves on God's mercy day in and day out. It doesn't teach us to, to find hope only in a crucified Lord. Because finding hope in a crucified Lord is foolishness. 
See, the answers to life's questions aren't discovered by means of human wisdom. And I'm a big fan of human wisdom. I'm a big fan of, of thinking. I, I, I love my systematic theology and my philosophy and my history. You know, math, I could take or leave. And while those things can help, and while those things at their, at their best and at their truest are pointing to the realities and the truth of God, the real answers to life's questions are not discovered by means of human wisdom, but through accepting a divine viewpoint. By accepting and implementing a, a kingdom mindset in ourselves. You want to know how to deal with the problems in the world? You want to know how to deal with the brokenness in the world? Adopt a kingdom mindset. And run, run everything else through that. At the end of verse 25 there, he says, revealed to them, revealed them, the, the, the things that have been denied to the wise and the intelligence, He's revealed them to the infants. Remember what Jesus says when He calls the children to Himself. Suffer the little children to come unto Me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. This, this little guy is totally useless. Totally helpless. He can't do anything on his own except make a lot of noise. So much noise. But he's got to be fed. He's got to be changed. He's got to be protected. He's got to be taught. He's got to be loved. Because none of that stuff comes from him. We, we've, got to be, we've got to be taught. We've got to be loved. We've got to be protected. We are useless and helpless without the Father there to love us, to guide us, and to protect us. There are several things just in the last five or six weeks that I've learned. One, I've been given a big old helping of humble pie. Two, I'm finding reserves of patience in myself that I didn't know I had. This may come as a surprise to some of you. I am not a terribly patient person. The impulse counter right there next to the cash register, you know, with the, with the candy and the bubble gum and all the little tchotchkes and stuff, that was put there for me. Because I'm checking out, and, you know, what's another buck fifty for a candy bar at that point? And yet I'm finding reserves 
of patience in myself that I didn't know that I had. But the biggest thing so far was this. A couple of days ago, I was in the, in the bedroom. I was trying to get him to take a nap. One thing he inherited from me is a desire to be awake all the time. And so I have him swaddled up and I have the lights off and I have the sound machine on and I'm in the rocking chair and I'm doing all the things, you know, you do. And I start singing to him that thing that you do where you, where you sing words that aren't a song, but you're just sort of singing them in a sing-songy voice, things that you want to tell him. And so I started telling him and singing to him about how much his daddy loved him and how wonderful he was and would he please go to sleep. But that quickly moved into how much the Father loves him. And how much the Father has wonderfully and beautifully made him. And in that moment, I was overwhelmed because because for a brief moment, I understood how much I loved him and how much greater the Father's love was for him and for me. And how helpless and hopeless and useless I was without the Father. Let us come as infants totally dependent to him. He tells us in verse 27, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father desires to reveal Him. There is this this mystery in the Trinity that we cannot fully know the Father without knowing the Son. We cannot fully know the Son without knowing the Father, and, and the Holy Spirit is in that dance too. I don't think that you can really know me until you've spent some time around my daddy. Because as much as he and I would like to deny it, we're an awful lot alike. Now we come, come to Jesus' invitation. The end, of his, the end of His prayer. He speaks now to the disciples in verse 28. Come to Me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, so, so what do we do? What do we do when we're heavy laden? When we're storm tossed? When we feel overcome with the pain? What does the kingdom mindset look like in this situation? Come to Jesus. To not put too fine a point on it, cry out. To him. Because it is in Jesus alone that we've just learned that can give us full access to the Father. Come to me. Come to me, whom I have just told you, am the door and the access way to the Father. Come to me. Who? Who is supposed to come? All. And the Greek word here means all. Not just some. 
You know, sometimes we think that, that our weariness or that our burden is, is too much for Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes there's this idea that, that it's not those who are weary, but those who were weary that get to come to Jesus. We've got to lay down our burden. We've got to do it on our own. We've got to get cleaned up before we can come through the back doors of the church and be here. But it's all. Come all who are, who are, come all who are weary and burdened. It's, it's all, and it's present tense. Anyone who is wearied with life's burdens, and who among us is not wearied with life's burdens? Man, how beautiful is that, that it's, that it's present tense. How beautiful is that, that we don't have to lay our burden down before we come in? How, how beautiful is that, that, that Jesus welcomes us while we're still carrying our baggage? Why? Why come to Him? Because He will give us rest. This is, an, this is an invitation to salvation. It's an invitation to find rest, to find freedom from your burdens, from your baggage that you carry. Tony Evans puts it like this, to rest is to put your burdens in God's hands and to enjoy His provision of forgiveness and eternal life. This, this rest is, is actually, it's refreshment. It's not permanent rest. We're going we're gonna to see in, in, in just the next verse where he's going to tell us to take up his yoke. It's, we're not done. There's still work to do. Life continues. And life on this side of the new heaven and the new earth will be a life that is riddled with brokenness. But it is rest that enables the worker in the field to return to the task. Let's see. Let's translate this into Robeson County. This rest is a bit of, is a bit of laying out in the shade and having a pack of nabs and a Coke. Is that about right? Because it lets you get back out into the field. It lets you to get back out to the work with renewed vigor. And it's rest that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Who is it that gives us the rest? I will give you rest. Not the Father will give you rest. Not that we will give you the rest. Not that God will give you the rest. But I, Jesus, will give you the rest. You know, of course the Son doesn't really do anything apart from the Father and the Spirit. But Jesus is making the point here that He, the Son, is the essential part of this equation. And why is that? It's because the Son is the only one that bore the burden of our sin. The Son is the only one that sacrificed Himself in our place. It's only the Son that paid the full price for our sin and our brokenness. Thus, 
this rest and this refreshment can only be found in the Son. Not in some amorphous concept of the divine that you might see in moral therapeutic deism. Not in, not in the Father. Not in anything except in the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to who? The Father. Except by me. We can't know the Father without knowing Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know what He has done for us. So now we get to this part where, where Jesus has told us that we're going to rest and that's great. And now He said, I'm going to give you your own yoke. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Once we come to Jesus, once we allow Him to refresh us, allow Him to point us to the work that we are made for and not the work that we think we should be doing, He invites us to what? What's Jesus' invitation to the disciples earlier in Matthew? Come and... Two words. Follow me. We're called to be disciples. We're called to, to hitch ourselves to Jesus. He uses this image of, of the yoke here. I don't know, some of you may have experienced a, a team of animals, a team of oxen working together under a yoke. The oxen that I knew the best were Dick and Dan. Two oxen at Colonial Williamsburg. And you, you, you hitch these these, these oxen together with a yoke, this, this wooden bar that connects to the necks of the team of oxen enable them to do the work that the master, that the farmer has for them to do. And when they're yoked together and the yoke fits, they're able to do far more than they could do on their own. With, there are several things for us to, to glean from this image of the yoke. First of all, without the yoke, things are much, much harder. Second, if you were an ox, you were always yoked to another ox. This life in Jesus is meant to be lived in community. It's meant to be lived with one another. It's meant to be lived with other believers. And it's meant to be lived with Jesus. You know, often the less experienced, younger ox would be, would be yoked to an older, more seasoned ox so that the older one could teach the younger one. So that the inexperienced ox could learn what it was to be part of the team. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Jesus is inviting us to be hooked in to Jesus' yoke. To be able to learn how to live from Him by being yoked to Him. Because when the team works together, the heavy burden is much easier and indeed can seem lighter. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, following Jesus won't make every problem go away. The work is still there. Jesus never, ever tells us that we won't have burdens in life. And we do a disservice to fellow believers, to ourselves, and especially to non-believers and baby Christians when we act like life in Jesus is without burdens. Or is supposed to be without burdens. It paints a false picture of what life of Jesus is like. But what Jesus does say is that the weight 
of the burdens would decrease, that they would become manageable, that our, that our baggage would grow wheels. Wheeled suitcases are one of the best inventions that we have ever had. Do you remember carrying around, lugging around suitcases before we had wheels on them? It was awful. And now I can run through the airport with a week's worth of clothes in a bag and a laptop and however many books I've decided to take on the trip that I think I'm going to read that I never actually open. And I can run through the airport because the wheels have made the work easy and light. That's what life with Jesus is like. Is Jesus putting... He doesn't lighten our baggage. He doesn't take our baggage away from us. But He puts wheels on it. The yoke only works if it's properly fitted. That's what it is that takes the burden well and right. So we can, we can try our for, to self, force ourselves into all sorts of unkempt, uh, ill-made, ill-fitting yokes to try and carry that burden. But an, an, an ill-fitting yoke is slavery. An ill-fitting yoke is a burden. An ill-fitting yoke will, be, will wear us down. But a proper-fitted yoke of God living in His divine plan, pulling in the direction of Jesus, that is freedom. That is living according to the purpose for which we are made. And so how do we do this? How do we hitch ourselves to Jesus? First of all, we have to acknowledge that He's Lord of our life. And once, once we acknowledge that He's Lord of our life, there are these small things, these small acts that place ourselves under His authority. Daily Bible reading. You cannot know God if you do not know God's Word. Daily prayer. You cannot know God if you don't talk with God. Worship attendance. By being here in the community of faith and by worshiping God together, we are placing ourselves under God's authority. Giving. We are called by God to give. It is a spiritual discipline. Here's the thing, folks. The church is going to be here. I'm going to preach the Gospel whether, whether we've got money in the plate or not. Asking you to give isn't about us keeping the lights on. Asking you to give isn't about paying the bills. Asking you to give is asking you to fulfill a spiritual obligation that God has given you. Fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that I have only added relatively recently. And it is doing amazing and remarkable things in my walk with God. Baptism. Baptism is an act of placing ourselves under God's authority. We call these things disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And discipline allows us to function at our highest level. Do you think those folks at the Olympics got there without any discipline in their life? Do you think you run 
as fast as those people run, which is incomprehensibly fast to me without discipline in your life. I'm in the camp that I think we should take one regular schlub and put him in every event so that we can really see how much better these people are at these things than we are. But they got there through discipline. Discipline allows us to function at our highest level. Spiritual disciplines allow us to function at our highest spiritual levels. And so, brothers and sisters, we end up here. If you are laden, if you are burdened, and if you are weary, come to Jesus. Place yourself under His authority. Hitch yourself to His yoke. And you will find rest. Our hymn of invitation is 295, Nearer to the Heart of God. If you wish to find yourself nearer to the heart of God, to to lay these burdens down, to hitch yourself to Jesus' yoke, this is an opportunity to make a public profession of faith, to make public that commitment. 295, Nearer to the Heart of God.